hppodcraft.com. What were my feelings to see their rental car swing, shadow-dappled, up the curving drive that windy afternoon, to see them climb out and squint up at the uncouth facade of my beloved Sternbrook, and to know that they, and especially those two of them, were delivered at last into my hands. Ah, sweet tumult of my heart. On the sward, the great horse chestnuts roared like bonfires in the bright blue gale, each one of them a cheering multitude, and still the soul within me outroared and outrejoiced them all. What ecstasy of the flesh comes near that first savor of revenge arrived at? Assured. That was the opening quote from Nemo Me Impune Lekesit, a short story by author Michael Shea. And we're about to discuss it here on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Chad Pfeiffer. We're here at HPPodcraft.com and Patreon. You know, I do often wonder what ecstasy of the flesh could be better than sweet, sweet revenge. Luckily, we've got a guest here to answer that question, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Patton Oswalt. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me back on the show. Well, thank you for coming back. We're so yeah. glad to have you again. What have you been up to since we last spoke? Oh, I've been traveling nonstop, doing shows. I'm working on a new special and also just acting in a lot of different things. Travel and, and then early call times. Reading. Are you reading anything? Yes, I'm actually going through that huge collection called The Weird which is an anthology that's arranged chronologically, sort of like the origins of the weird tale up to the present, and it's been really, really fascinating. I, I reread uh, I reread Algernon Blackwood's The Willows. Yes. Probably my fifth reading of that. It's amazing to read that and see there are especially two very specific passages where you can imagine H.P. Lovecraft reading them and going, that's what I'm going to write. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, literally, it's the, it's the whole basis of everything H.P. Lovecraft did is in two paragraphs of The Willows. <laughs> just those two. That's yeah. it. Yeah. We would have had a much easier job if we just read those two paragraphs and mm-hmm. not covered all of his work. Well, we're back to reading Michael Shea's Lovecraftian mythos stories. Uh, last May, we started working our way through this collection, Copping Squid. Uh, we tackled the first three stories in the book, and now we're back a year later for more Shea goodness. And I wanted to mention real quick that some folks did have trouble getting a copy of Copping Squid. I think it may be out of print. Yeah, I don't know what was... I mean, I, I Michael sent me a very early advanced copy of it, and then I bought a copy the minute it came out, and I just assumed... Did, didn't Tor Books put it out or some... It was a small publisher. It was... You know what? I have it uh, here. Oh. This was Perilous Press, I believe is who it is. Oh, okay. You know, looking around on Amazon and stuff, they're just really expensive copies of it. But there is a, a, another anthology you can get, right? Yeah, Demiurge, The Complete Cthulhu Mythos Tales of Michael Shea, and that's also edited by Joshi, and that's on Kindle, so you can get it digitally and, and read it that way. I pre-ordered the uh, hardback, and I mean, it still hasn't come yet. I think it comes out later in the summer. I want the big yummy yeah deluxe edition man are are you are you a bibliophile do you like getting the the hard copy uh it depends i mean i i do i i'm guilty of the whole books decorator room aesthetic i like a big wall full of books so and especially if if they're really well designed then yeah i i'll totally get those you know who doesn't my wife really really no not a not a book person or, or she likes books, but she just wants them on a kindle yeah (laughs) she reads a lot but i like having a wall of books yeah. And she doesn't like that. Anywho, wow, yeah, getting it's personal weird. right one away. One of the um, the death of print because of digital media. The one upside to it is it's actually helping with global warming and the ozone layer because we are needing less of our forests and we're burning <laughs> less stuff. So um, 
weirdly enough, it's, it, that's the one good thing. And so. just general tidiness. Uh, and general tidiness, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, this story, it has a Latin title, Nemo me impune lacessit. What, what, what does that mean? Well, I know that it is the very beginning of Poe's cask of Amontillado. That's right. And it has something like, nobody insults me and lives or something like that. Yeah, that's pretty much it. No, yeah, one, yeah. no one hurts me with impunity or, or without being punished. It's actually the, the national motto of, of Scotland. Yeah, the Kingdom yeah. of Scotland. What? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my which is which God. is pretty it's pretty badass. Wow. Uh, they should up that update that to come at me. <laughs> come at me, bro. Come at me, you fucking cunt. <laughs> <laughs> I did uh, not know that that's the motto of Scotland. Yeah, man. Yeah. That's, that's oh legit. God. As uh, if I could as if I couldn't love them anymore. I know. We actually uh, we were discussing that phrase in November last year because that's traditionally for us Povember, oh. where we'll we'll tackle a bunch of his stories. And we did the Casca of Amontillado. We did a few others. And actually, it's in this story that section from the Casca of Amontillado is quoted in the epigraph right at the top. Nice. So Shay wants us to know that it's from that story. Right. And you're familiar with that story, right? You know what that's. Oh, about. absolutely. It, it has a very very similar beginning to the Telltale Heart, where the the narrator is so crazed by the need for what they believe is their rightful revenge. I mean, the Telltale Heart narrator is truly out of his mind. Mm. This guy is on the way towards where the Telltale Heart guy is, and they are so justifying what it is that they're doing, and then almost that they both kind of like their victim. They don't absolutely hate them. There's a bit of love there, which makes it even more twisted. Yeah, and you don't really know what the insult was that motivated the the revenge. they're never clear about that. Now, we also did the Telltale Heart that month. We also did Hop Frog, which is another amazing Mm. Poe. Great revenge story. Great revenge story. Oh, that one is very clear. It's very clear why uh, he does what he does to the king and his friends, the way that they treat his, the love of his life, basically. Yeah, total, yeah. This might be an obvious question, but I love revenge tales. I love the oh, Count of Monte yeah. Cristo. You know, yeah. I love anything like that. Why, why do you think that's such a popular type of story, the, the revenge tale? Probably because in our daily lives, we have to put up with a lot of small and large insults, m- uh, many of which have to go unanswered. So it's a release to see a fictional version of, of revenge well served. I mean, yeah. it's, it's one of my favorite short stories is uh, Stephen King's Dolan's Cadillac is an amazing amazing revenge story that I, I, I don't want to oh god it is he was in a bad mood when he wrote that story <laughs> but it is fantastic but and it is a let's serve this revenge very very cold i think that's the exact correct ding yeah right answer yeah, to yeah. question uh well hey let's get into the story and feel that ecstasy of sweet sweet revenge mm-hmm. so we're getting the story from the narrator this guy monte who's got a very kind of flowery style of prose almost lovecraftian in the way he talks which is sort of jarring at first, especially coming from Shea, but I quickly realized that this is kind of a bit tongue-in-cheek. The narrator is a cultist sorcerer character and has a bit of this affected use of language, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, Michael Shea loves these characters that are kind of frustrated literati types, especially in a world where you know, the written word doesn't quite have the cachet that it used to, so people that speak with flowery language or appreciate language are often seen as the nerds or the shunted aside or the, the runts. He likes that kind of tension. Whereas, unlike in a story like Uncle Tug, where the narrator is barely literate, but mm. it's still fascinating, mm. this is someone who's like, oh, you know, it's the it's the Homer Simpson thing. I'm a I'm a Spalding Gray mind in a Rick D's world. <laughs> so is that, yeah, that classic thing. 
Remember that line that he said? I don't, but it's oh, genius. That's it's weird. I just thought of Rick Dees this morning, apropos of nothing. Why yeah, would I, you I, do I, that? No, it just popped into my head. That's very strange. <laughs> well, I thought this guy's name, Monty, was maybe a reference to Cask of Montiato, because that main character's name, yes. Montresources. Right. But we're tipped off right away that this language is out of place by the fact that people are showing up in a rental car. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know yet that he was a wizard, but no. I was enjoying it anyway for the reasons that Patton was saying, because I was thinking of him as like this frustrated horror nerd. Yes. And I was wondering, do you ever know anybody who has that kind of affected language in your real life, or maybe who feels a little out of step with the modern world? Well, I mean, just go walk through Silver Lake or Los Feliz, you'll see them, you know, or walk through Brooklyn, the, the old timeies <laughs> with their, uh, you know, the penny-farthing bicycles. <laughs> there's a lot, trust me, there's a lot of those. That they want, they want design and uh, technology to kind of freeze at a very specific year. Yeah. And they, then they'd be happy. That would solve everything. <laughs> yes, all, the, all their exactly. interpersonal issues. Yes. Well, Monty's victims, they step out of this rental car in front of his giant house, Sternbrook, and they've never seen it before. One of the guests is his ex-wife, Valerie. She's there with her new boyfriend, whom he calls the porno prince, Mr. Quartz. <laughs> and later we find out his first name is Cayman, which is a joke that Shay leaves us to figure out on our own. Yes. I totally missed it, by the way. You did? You had to tell me. Yeah, I didn't put it together. Of course. It that's took weird. me a little bit of time, but yeah. I thought that's tell a Tell the listeners. That's a good one. <laughs> Came in courts. Get it? It's a lot of it's a lot of jizz, folks. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> uh, the two other guests are Valerie's sister, Natalie, and an older pudgy bearded camera guy slash director called Bo Beck. Monty describes to the reader how he thinks he appears to his guests. To them, I was an oddball, bookish cuckold. A gaunt, old, worldly man of late middle age who was still so infatuated with a remorseless young beauty who had misused him that he now permitted new and grotesque indignities to be visited upon himself just to bring her near again. So he talks about how he has scoured tombs and uh, sifted through book after book to find forgotten lore. Mm-hmm. He writes out their greetings as a play. Yeah, I, I, that's a funny little section. I'm I love this. Let's read through this here. Yes. Um, I'll be... Well, let's just kind of run through it. Yeah. Okay. Let's okay. point different people. You'll be reading Valerie. Okay, Valerie. Valerie. Jesus, Monty, how come you never told me about this place, sweetheart? I mean, hey, talk about family secrets. I mean, just the staircase by itself. You see it, Cayman? How's it going? I'll be Natalie. You've got to be kidding, Monty. No hints now. There's a hunchback butler, right? Or else he's a cyclops. One eye, right? Hello, Professor. It all just knocks my flat hat off. I mean, I'm secretly blown away. You never had a film crew here before? <laughs> terrible, terrible waste. Wow. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was good. That was the cameraman. Bo Beck. I, I literally um, pictured him like, uh, oh my God, what, he's, he just passed away. The, uh, the the cameraman in Boogie Nights. The, um, Ricky J. Ricky J. Ricky J. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Ricky yeah. J. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's kind of jarring to hear their modern language, given how the narrator speaks. And they do kind of come off like Hollywood dummies, which I think is the point. Right. Yeah, Monty plays the role of the dazzled spectator to these showbiz people. And Valerie is going on about how the place is very gothic, uh, and he's getting a little angry because he's like, it's actually Baroque, you idiot. <laughs> oh, yes, that's such a thing he'd be angry about. <laughs> His servant is this guy, Koboldus. Koboldus! Uh, yeah. <laughs> of course! <laughs> you rang. He shows up and he takes their bags. Monty says Koboldus has a, the form of an elderly, thick-set man. Yes. Meaning that he's not a elderly, thick-set man, mm-hmm. just the form, and remarks that uh, his voice is not for outsiders, so he must remain mute to them. This guy's a kobold, right? Something, yeah, something <laughs> is amiss there. He is some kind of otherworldly creature that our narrator has made appear in pleasing human form. <laughs> right. Well, kobold in German myth is like a house spirit. 
But oh, in D and D, a kobold is I like a little lizard guy. Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah in D and D, kobold was like a it's like a smaller lizard man, but they were like brown scaled. Yeah. Tinier. That's what how yeah, I remember. That's it exactly. Yeah. A smaller lizard man. Yeah. As opposed to the lab coated lizard man <laughs> yes, we're exactly. usually used <laughs> yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, there's a whole race called lizard men in Dungeons and Dragons. So. Oh, excuse yeah, me. So Sorry. Obviously, no, they're somebody taller and greener. Please. Excuse me, Chad. <laughs> obviously, and they use very primitive weapons. They're they're Stone mm-hmm. Age technology. Bobek wants to know where. <laughs> Bobek wants to know if there are catacombs under the house. And Monty again is kind of annoyed that he's misusing catacombs, which I've done a million times. He he says yes, there's a vast cellar, but I think you have to have bodies down there. Yes, exactly. Although maybe very soon they'll be. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie, the sister, tells Monty that she thinks that the whole horror porno thing is a bad idea. She asks how Roger could have talked him into it. Yeah, and Roger's some kind of producer financier that we never see, but this uh, he's the one who set this whole event up. And the way they discussed the whole porno genre seemed a little old school to me, or odd. And, you know, I discovered it's because the story was actually published in Whispers magazine in 1982. Yeah, and and again, this could very well be a period piece. I think it's it aged pretty well because, especially for it being set in San Francisco, San Francisco was a huge porn hub up until the early 80s, so this is almost like the last gasp of that dying era. Hmm. Yeah, I just thought, well, why aren't they talking about shooting it in on their iPhones and it's... Uh, Right. Ste- a stepmother situation or something, but they're going to put production <laughs> value into it. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Bobek wants to see the chapel that's in the house, and that is where they're supposed to shoot. Koboldus brings them drinks, and they go upstairs to this chapel. Valerie complains about the lines that Roger gave them, and Natalie says they're just gobbledygook. Yeah, she says any witchcraft gobbledygook would work. Uh, she wonders why he used these specific lines. Oh. So they enter the chapel, and it's super cool and creepy with huge stained glass window. Now, Monty worries that they may actually sense the real dread of this place. So he says, oh, I know this is very scary. Everybody gets scared here. And this kind of makes them want to show that they're not scared. So they overperform yeah, a bit. Very smart. He did the, uh, oh, let's let's uh, kind of challenge the whole alpha status of these people. So, of course, they're going to go, no, are you kidding? Those those pussies. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Valerie flirts with Cayman a bit and stretches out on this uh, velvet-draped dais where they're going to be filming their carnalities that night at Moonrise. He pretends he's jealous, but really he's just wondering how he could have ever been so into her. Could this small, stupid mammal actually have chained and mesmerized a man who had seen two centuries of human life and spanned far vaster gulfs of ultra-human time and space by the old ones and the elder? What an ape is the wisest man, the greatest scholars, perennial monkeys. Had I not abandoned for nearly three years my vital priestly labors, did I not become an utter stranger to Sternbrook and dwell in more than one mindless maelstrom of modernity and then the two battening freeway creeping gibberish howling yahoos of New York, Chicago, Los Angeles did I not play the well-heeled bibliophile amidst a dozen hellish circles of purse-proud fools and all to woo and win and sustain and bliss this fidgeting self-adoring gypsy posing on blue velvet how she had taunted me had used our bed for humiliations for farcical mockeries for occasional charities. <laughs> so this 200-year-old this sorcerer got the hots for a porn star and gave up his eldritch gangster lifestyle for a little bit of the strange. Or is he not a 200-year-old sorcerer? He's just a deep horror nerd who thinks, oh, I've actually been living this like I'm on it. Because look, there are people that believe that they are actually werewolves or they oh, believe sure. like there's that whole yeah. thing. So again, Michael Shea is so good at 
terrific unreliable narrator yeah yeah no that's, I a, love. that's a great point yeah mm-hmm. we've definitely encountered some of those folks since we've been doing <laughs> this show over the last <laughs> 10 years but this is important to humanize him or at least to explain the slight this is what he wants to avenge that right. he was kind of used by this woman oh no yeah it doesn't matter if it's true or not if it's motivating what he's doing then this story's chugging along yeah and ba- and it's the kind of thing where she's just mad she didn't do what he told her to do no <laughs> she's college educated she comes from money she feels like being the queen of X is the ultimate liberation and uh, you know he says the offering would be yielded up with priestly fervor as is fitting and those from whose service I had been renegade would be appeased by that which had seduced me. So oh my God. He, he left Listen behind to the me. twisted logic of this <laughs> yes. guy's head. I oh. should have been paying attention to my evil overlords, but yeah. I'll, I'll sate them with what I was diverted Well, by. not only is he going to get revenge on them, he is going to undo all the times that he remembers feeling less than and mm. feeling like a beta. He's going to he's gonna yeah. re... He's basically getting... It's almost like he's getting reparations for his misused manhood. <laughs> That's absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So they return to the West Wing for some more drinks and some rock music. <laughs> Valerie dances with <laughs> Bo Beck mostly because Cayman is just too cool for school and he, he doesn't want to do it. But I, I like this part. It says, The portly photographer had a real comic genius for lube pantomimes woven into the freeform strut than popular. <laughs> it's almost like he's complimenting... Bo Beck, he's like, he's doing some kind of jokey dancing, and he's pulling it off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just imagine he was doing the worm. Something along those lines. And Koboldus just keeps the drinks coming. He's Nicely done, Koboldus. That's right. <laughs> Once they loosen up, it's time to set the trap in motion. So Monty tells Bo Beck that Roger, the producer, is also interested in shooting something in their cellars, something called a snuff film? Yeah, I, I remember in the 80s, everybody was talking about these rumored snuff films, and it was a very scary idea that entertainment eventually was going to go that far. Is that still a thing that people are concerned uh, with? I don't know about? if that's a thing. I mean, again, keep in mind when this story was written in 1982, that I think that was the height of the snuff film urban myth. It yeah. hadn't been disproven yet, so for all we know, people thought they were really... Oddly enough, we now live in a camera phone age where obviously there are not produced snuff films, but there are beheading videos. There are, you know, I mean, basically cops wearing body cams are releasing snuff films all the time, whether they want to or not. I mean, that's a very grim thing to realize about the world we're in now, but that is what's going on. Well, this is the trap that he set for Bo Beck. He knows this guy wants to make a bunch of money from snuff films, is willing to undercut Roger, that producer. So he wants to see the sellers, and Bo tells the actors to study their lines, and they go down to check them out. Mm-hmm. They have a cassette tape that they play for them to learn their lines, and of course the, they play it, and it's Cthulhu Fataga, and yeah, yeah, all that stuff. So we're getting the Lovecraftian goodness. Yeah, that's the specific gibberish that was right. annoying that they had to learn. And I, I was going, is this like, so this isn't like Evil Dead, I mean, just playing the cassette tape to learn the lines, <laughs> is it gonna... I remember thinking about that too, but I thought maybe he strategically left a couple of words off here and there, so that the tape wouldn't trigger it too early. Uh-huh. This is me overthinking. No, it, I yeah. mean, I thought the story was bullshit till you cleared that up. So. <laughs> Good deal. Yeah. So as Monty and Bo go to check out the cellars, Monty tells them all about the torture devices that are down there. Now, the cellars are much older than the 300-year-old house above them, dating from medieval times. I think he says 10th century or something like that. And he, he mentions a few of the torture devices down there. One of them is an Iron Maiden. And I recently read that those aren't actually a real thing. Really. Yeah, exactly. It was it was made years or you know centuries after the Middle Ages, and people would invent them as like you know tourist attractions. Mm. But they didn't actually use Iron Maidens back then. No, no. no, they're not historically accurate. That's right. Yeah, I think that they popped up in the late 1700s. Even if you see them in a museum, that late. Yeah, it's that it's that late. It was a prop that was built that people said 
imagine right. how horrible this must have been yeah. to be. But I don't think they were ever actually. Who knows? Maybe yeah. they were. I don't know. Well, I think it was just because to emphasize the savagery of the oh yeah ages. exactly. Well, they descended to the cellar. Bobek goes wild with the place. He loves the gothic look, which uh, of course he says again. Mm. Uh, he wants to shoot the snuff film in here. It's also freaking him out a bit on an instinctual level. Like he senses there's something wrong, but his greed is pushing him on. It's a very cask of Montiato scene. He keeps feeding him booze to ward away his fears Mm -hmm. and uh, loosen him up as they descend further and further into these cellars. And Monty comments as they descend a set of steps. Down there, the stonework changes character because those ultimate deepest corridors were not dug by the inhabitants of the ancient maze, but rather met their diggings. Other workers had fashioned the staircase and sunken halls. Workers and artisans from the sea, some five miles distant. Bo is so drunk now that he starts getting a little over-friendly, and he admits that he too had sex with Mallory a few times, and he, and he hopes that, you know, there aren't any hard feelings. But sex isn't his bag anymore. It's all about the gore and the violence. And Monty sort of scoffs to himself that Bobek thinks of himself as this really evil guy. He's small potatoes compared to a Catholic sorcerer. It's like an ultimate fighting championship for evil. (laughs) (laughs) We have the snuff film guy versus the Catholic sorcerer. Here we go. Well, some of the stuff Bo says here is pretty evil, or at least distasteful. He explains that the people they get for these snuff films are terminal types anyway, and the money goes to their families, he guesses. He says, I mean, syphilis, worms, TB, some of them really retarded, cancer, you name it. Yeah, he calls them trash meat, and Monty, he likes that. He says, that is poetry, Mr. Beck. You are a poet, trash meat. Hollowed out of soul, empty of mind, a rack of beef that speaks, eats, drinks, eliminates, and makes money, or tries to. He leads Bo back into this chamber with a big steel door. The stench in this chamber is so strong that it makes Bo Beck vomit. The room is huge with a crusted altar at the center. Monty is now in full theatrical mode. Behold, did I lie to you? Oubliettes. Very ancient ones too, Mr. Beck, and far deeper, far more commodious than the norm. Oh, yes. And dear Mr. Beck, do you know what by all the old and elder gods? Can you guess? These oubliettes... They are in use. Genuine and ancient prisoners they hold. Authentic. Oh, yes. Authentic past all your guessing. Do you know what a Shogoth is? Would you care to meet one? Hmm. And this calls to mind that uh, line from The Shadow of Rinsmith when the old drunk Zadok Allen says, Ever hear tell of a Shogoth? Yeah. But he never explains what one is in that story, and here we don't really know yet either. I mean, what do you, what is a Shogoth? The Shogoths were designed by the Elder Things. In the in the prehistoric times, and the elder was, ones, the elder ones, or elder, elder things, things, the other things, the ones in, at the mountains of madness, right? So they were used as slaves. They were bred to do slave labor, and then eventually they evolved and they got stronger, more powerful, and they revolted against the other things. Oh. and that was kind oh, of oh yeah, that's right, the that's, resubjugation wars. Yes, and that that's kind right. Of thing. Yeah, yeah. They're going all the way a whole bunch of detail that in at the mountains of madness, and there's some uh, hint that maybe humans are spun off from Shogoth. Yes. That Shoggoths are the beginning of most of the animal life on Earth. Oh, boy. I always think they're protoplasmic and can shift and change into any kind of thing. And I always, what did we, what is it called? The water weasel? Like those <laughs> things that you, like, hang on to. They, they're filled with oh, water. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Can't quite get a grip. I always imagine them right. like that. Well, it seems that he can command the uh, Shoggoth he's got down in one of these oubliettes. He says some magic words and something starts to stir below. An oubliette is, a, is like a sub-dungeon with a gate over it. Yes, yes. Area. 
So Bobek tries to go for the door, and he's totally lost his mind. He struggles with it so hard that his fingers become bloodied. But Monty, he has the key, and he throws it on the altar. Bobek runs for it, and then he is consumed by the Shoggoth. It poured with oceanic swiftness to surround the altar, blackly foaming, piping with shrill, delirious cosmic greed. The Shoggoth, knowing my will, did not engulf him, but plunged instead its feed tentacles into the back of the fat man's skull as one might thrust a spoon into an egg to scoop it hollow. Bobek knew, as long as any of the apparatus of knowing remained in him, the Shoggoth's every probe and pluck and hungry violation of his tissues. <laughs> God! When Michael Shea starts talking about these things, <laughs> devouring humans, we saw those in those first three stories, yeah. like uh-huh. licking the bones clean. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, he really God. gets into the And, and the fact that this guy feels it all. You know, yeah, it's not, he ain't messing around. It's not like you know, getting no. your head bit off by a tiger or something. No. <laughs> Which is what most of the stories I read are about. <laughs> the sun is setting and Monty heads back to the house. He's intercepted by Natalie, the sister. She has issues again with the dialogue that Valerie and Cayman have been assigned. Yeah, and this part is even more unbelievable to me than the Shoggoth attack. Because she says they've got it all down pat in perfect good faith. But it just sounds too ridiculous. And there's just no way they memorize those lines. Especially <laughs> they're half in the bag. Yeah, exactly. Come on, Michael. Haven't you ever worked with porn actors? Especially drunk ones? Do some research, for God's sakes. Well, so Natalie's weakness or sin is that uh, she thinks she's better than everybody and she likes to gossip and, and he says she's a fool proud of her wits. Monty wants her to come and look at his roses, but she's not interested until he says, well, you know, Roger and I are kind of part of a deception and that has got her attention. Yeah, he walks along towards the gardens and she keeps up because, you know, she wants that juicy gossip. He confesses that he paid Roger a lot of money to have them make this movie at his house and Roger is taking the lion's share of all this money that he paid them and not giving it to the performers. Monty then says, well, don't worry about Roger. He can't spend any of it. He's been snatched away by a monster and taken out of time and space. (laughs) A monster that Monty himself summoned. So it's kind of interesting because he's just being honest at this point. He tells her he's a warlock over 200 years old and Natalie just thinks he's full of crap and she's about to storm off and tell the others when he tells her that he thought she was the smart one. I could put in your hands a bouquet of my roses, my trans-cosmic Ugothian roses, all tagged, their extraterrestrial provenance precisely described, I even have a monograph, written in my own hand, upon their nature and substance. I overrated you. You are ignorant, of course, but ignorance is not the mark of stupidity. No. The dunce's signal trait is the refusal of knowledge when it is offered. The rejection of plain evidence. Does this ring true when he says that that's what a true dunce is? Somebody who sees knowledge and then refuses to accept it? I'm a, yeah, that's a little troublesome, only because... You know, there's all these insane conspiracy theorists now on Twitter and YouTube. Mm. We're all like, look at the evidence. There's, you know, like the earth is the, the flat earthers are like, see how dumb people are. They can't even, weirdly enough, what he is saying is the new signal trait of the ignorant. Of oh. if you just don't accept what I'm saying without argument, it shows how dumb you are. Oh. Yeah. Have you noticed that? Totally. And in, and in fact, he kind of confirms it because how is a written monograph proof of anything? Because he wrote it. <laughs> he wrote it. <laughs> yeah. So I could put, you know, tr- right. and roses on anything. Yeah. That's, it's not, that's not proof. Yeah. She thinks that he's crazy and she's going to prove that he's crazy. Let's just have that evidence, eh? So she marches into the arboretum just as Monty had planned. He says the flowers glow, but not quite. The red of them. Lush and varied, it reverberated in the golden dusk. It devoured the eye and set the nerves afire. Just so, 
across light years of space-time must alien sunsets blaze in gorgeous toxic atmospheres, those swollen carnal blossoms lulled, fattening like vampires on the sun's saffron and copper. She stands there gawking at this crazy sight. She says the color is impossible, that they're feeling up her mind, they're groping her brain. Do you think this is a reference to the color out of space? Yeah. Kind oh, of. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. also in, in um, Die, Monster, Die, which I think is based on the color mm-hmm. out of space, it isn't is, there yeah. like a crazed greenhouse of yeah. weird stuff? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Just then, a rift opens up in the sky and a thing comes crashing down into the flowers. The vines and the plants, they move and wrap around it and then they see that it's actually that producer, Roger. <laughs> and the plants start eating him. That's I felt like that, that's the beat in the, the slasher film when the victim finds the last victim. Yes, they, absolutely. They fall out of the closet or whatever, except right. I don't think I've ever seen a, the sky split open and you know, <laughs> Reggie, you know, fall through the... <laughs> so Monty backs away as the plants uproot themselves and they take Natalie. Now the sun is set and the full moon rises. Yes, time to get back up. Now that that revenge is, is, has happened, it's time to get back up to the, the core people that need to get it, Valerie and Cayman Courts. Cayman <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. The chapel is all lit up with candles and the place is glowing. Cayman is wearing this little loincloth that looks satanic, but actually Monty tells us that it's actually Tyndolian and the, it's a summoning symbol for the hounds. Yeah, it's a reference to the oh. hounds of Tyndalo, so yeah. uh, a mythos story by Frank Belknap Long. Did we do that one? Yeah, we did. Oh, okay. And Valerie's skimpy outfit has the markings that will compel Arachnad to crawl down from his or her place at Azazoth's side. I, I don't know what that is. I assume it's spider-like based on the name. There was another series of books he wrote called Nift the Lean, and I think that there is a, uh-huh. a spider god in those that might be like, I gotta, no, because th- I think his guy's in Nift the Lean was called Arak, but Arak, it's a spider god. I think this is a Shea original. Uh, yeah. When I yeah. was looking it up, yeah. everything went back to him, so I think And that... Shea likes spiders, so. Well, there you go. <laughs> spiders show up in a lot of his stuff. <laughs> the moon shines in, and Valerie and Cayman move to the dais where there's a lustful couch. As the light hits the window, it glows unnaturally, and they're on drugs, so this crazy bending of space-time doesn't really affect them. Bo Beck then shambles in and goes to the camera. Which confused me at first, obviously, on purpose, right? Because, I, is he a zombie? Was he, you know, I thought the Shoggoth ate him, but there's a reveal. It's coming soon. The lovers are too into their sexing to notice that anything <laughs> amiss. They start to speak the dialogue and they can see these things in the window, like living monstrosities swirling around. Cayman and Valerie then look at it and then they look to Monty like, what's going on? We need an explanation here. I got the impression that in that window, and it kind of reminded me of um, the story where the guy had to go into that, that we did last time. The guy goes into the house and goes up and it gets the drug Copy money. squid. Co- yeah, copying squid. Yeah. Uh, is this Cthulhu kind of peeping Tom looking in on them? Well, yeah, because he had talked about how our world is like a stained glass window that they are peeping into. Yeah. They're drawn to the warmth and the color. And so that's why they're looking, like there's little spots where they can look in. And that had that same sensation in this one. Uh-huh. It says uh, that cephalopod leviathan of boiling arms pressed its colossal scrutiny upon them. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's Cthulhu just checking yeah, out, yeah, checking yeah. out yeah. some porn. It's like, yeah, it's a quarter booth for Elder It's God. a quarter booth for Cthulhu. Monty steps forward and bows to them as Bobek steps to his side and he sheds his skin. It's Kaboldus. Aha. In his true form, his scales and talons shining wet from his disguise. So he he took Bobek's skin and then wore it as a costume. Mm -hmm. And and Monty intones some final mythos chants. He calls on Azathoth, Cthulhu, Yogg-Sothoth, and then the revenge tale concludes. Then a very Ragnarok surged through the window, which burst to scintillant atoms before it. The hounds crowded big-shouldered through the sparkling chaos and joyously sank their bristling snouts into Cayman. Tarantilaic arachnad vaulted to Valerie's golden head and pierced it like an orange rind with sleek, hypodermic fangs. And yet our sacrifices scarce had eyes for these lesser horrors. 
They lavished all their howlings and pleading contortions like tribute gold upon the giant of boiling arms whose beaked mouthparts had pecked away the window and which now, after one voluptuous pause, pinched those two squalling morsels from the gory, glass-littered velvet. Adieu, adieu, O glorious departure. I relive it still each day, and though the seasons have come fully round again, I find the sweetness of the memory still fresh and the image undimmed. And so it shall prove, I think, to the end of my days, for few such triumphs as that May Eve are granted an artist, and he does well to treasure those which are. So this is like he assembled the Avengers of the <laughs> Lovecraft world, basically. You got the Hound, you got his own guy, Arachnad, and then Cthulhu. Like, yeah. he's bringing them all in, man. Yeah. I'm, would, they be dis- would they be disappointed? Because it's just two porn stars. Like, all those guys showing those up monsters? and there's just, yeah, it's just two sacrifices. <laughs> I would think it would be like you would have hundreds of people for a sacrifice of this level. Yeah, but maybe the fact that he did it so ritualistically perfectly and addressed them in the proper raiments, maybe uh-huh. that made them way tastier morsels there we go. to these yeah. gods than yeah. if you just you shoved like a hundred bus passengers at them that you hadn't really done any kind of ritual around. <laughs> yeah. Like he had really marinated these guys. That's like, right. Hey, it's true. It's, that's a good flank steak. <laughs> yeah. hey. it's, it's, I don't know why Cthulhu has an Italian accent, but yeah. <laughs> hey, that's the spiciest sacrifice. <laughs> Hey! <laughs> oh man! Well, that that was the that's the end of the story. I got, I really enjoyed the characterization. I love a good revenge tale. The setting was great. Yeah, and it's, it's and, a if, home and run. if you're reading it in the order of copping squid, you've been at street level, kind of low life San Francisco, and now suddenly you're up in the hills because San Francisco has a very feudal separation between street level that level of economic survival mm-hmm. and then suddenly the the rich part the knob hill part if you will yeah well this is the first story in the book too that is the perspective of the of the bad guy is it yes yeah you're right yeah. Yeah. oh my gosh you're right yes so that's we're seeing if it. you think he's a bad guy <laughs> <laughs> who wouldn't summon three elder gods to kill your ex-girlfriend who's hooked up with a porn star <laughs> very i mean who among us yeah please yeah, who can true. say they wouldn't who do such a thing who can say Well, I love the story. Thanks again so much for coming on the show and for reading for us this time. That was really fabulous. Man, thanks for... I love reading Michael Shea's stuff. It is just chewy and blood-dripping and fantastic. (laughs) Delicious. Well, that's all we got for you folks this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Chad Fife. I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Patton Oswalt. You've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com.